Let's pray. Father, at the close of this day, as darkness has fallen upon us outside, we pray that your light would be ever bright and renewed here in our midst through your word. So teach us and convict us, reprove us, rebuke us, help us to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. I remember hearing a pastor say several years ago that you could give the secret to a good marriage in just one word. And the word that he gave was not money or sex or communication or even love. The word was forgive. Forgiveness is the key ingredient, not only in marriage, but in any relationship involving sinners. If you have friends who are going to stick with you for a long time, if you plan to see your relatives more than once every other year, if you hope to work in the same place with many of the same people for any length of time, if you want to be happy in your church or simply put up with going to church, you need to learn forgiveness. You need to grant it. You need to receive it. And what's true in our horizontal relationship is also true in our vertical relationship. Of course, there, it's a relationship not between sinners. God is not a sinner. He never needs to be forgiven. But if we want to have a healthy, vibrant relationship with our Heavenly Father, we must come often before Him, confessing our sins, asking for grace. We can look at this fifth petition there in verse 12 in two obvious categories. Our vertical relationship with God, our horizontal relationship with others. You can think of these two realities as the forgiveness we need to give and the forgiveness we need to receive. What we need to give and grant to others and what we need to receive from God. So let's start with where Jesus starts, vertically, the forgiveness we need to receive from God. We need daily bread that we might live. And you could say we need daily forgiveness that we might not die. The fact that verse 11 says, give us this day our daily bread suggests that Jesus expected this prayer or something like it in our hearts to be prayed every day. How else are you going to say this day and daily unless you're saying the Lord's Prayer, maybe not wrote these exact words, but it is guiding and giving you the template for how you ought to pray. And so if we are asking every day for bread, it stands to reason that we are also coming before God every day to ask for grace for our debts. What is a debt? Well, a debt is simply something you owe. And here it's something we owe that we cannot pay. That's what makes us 
debtors. Now this raises that perennial question which maybe you have stumbled upon at some interdenominational family gathering when you try to pray together. Doesn't matter if we say debts and debtors or trespasses and those who trespass against us. Other than that, debts and debtors is a lot easier to say in unison. I've often thought we need some new Nicaea or Chalcedon, some international council to settle this once and for all so we can all be saying the same thing. It doesn't matter a lot, but it may matter a little. The ESV has debts in Matthew 6.12, but if you have your Bible open, you can see in verse 14 it has trespasses, so that's a fine biblical word. And in Luke's account of the Lord's Prayer, and we are usually reciting the one from Matthew, but in Luke's account, 11 verse 4, there it has the word sins. So debts, trespasses, sins, each of those are translating three different Greek words. So if you pray about your debts or your trespasses or your sins, you are on good biblical ground praying about all of those things. They mean roughly the same thing, but not exactly the same thing. Think about it. You see a sign, do not trespass. Do not come onto our property. There is a rule, there is a boundary, and when you trespass, you are stepping over, you are committing a violation of some boundary or command. You are committing an infraction, that's a trespass. A debt is a little different. A debt suggests that we owe God something. Forgive us our debts implies that we have done things that we should not have done, And that would be like a trespass. But it also implies that there are things that we have left undone that we should have done. What the Book of Common Prayer calls prayers of commission, prayers of omission. The reason, actually, that many people pray, forgive us our trespasses, is because of the Book of Common Prayer. That's where this divide comes from. The Geneva Bible, the King James Bible from the 16th and 17th centuries, respectively, translated this as debts, but the Book of Common Prayer has trespasses. If you know your church history, you know the Book of Common Prayer comes out of the Anglican church, still used in the Anglican tradition. So those church traditions that came out of Anglicanism, so here in the United States, Episcopalian or Wesleyan or Methodist, They tend to say trespasses, while most everyone else says debts correctly. No, but says debts. Now, I do think it's correct. Like I said, it's not a big deal, but a little deal. I think it is the best translation here in Matthew 6. The only other place that the Greek word, ophelema, occurs in the New Testament is in Romans 4.4, where clearly it refers to a debt, to what? someone owes or is owed. And similarly, the word ophelates is consistently employed to mean debtor. That's the word translated debtors in verse 12. Several times throughout the rest of the New Testament, we have that word and it's with that sense, usually the language of debtor. Every English translation I can find, except for the loosely translated New Living Translation, uses debts and debtors here in Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer. But of course, more important than just getting the word right is getting the idea right. And here's the idea. 
This is what Jesus wants us to learn. Every day we live, we live as debtors to mercy. I wonder if you really believe that, if I really believe that. If we're honest in our hearts, we hate to admit this. We know we have some bad days and we just woke up on the wrong side of the spiritual bed or we turned over and our kids were there on the other side of the bed and that was not how we wanted to wake up. And we have those bad days, but a lot of days we feel like we're, we're doing okay. Maybe, you know, Monday, that's not going to be good. That's going to be, but, but, you know, maybe Tuesday sort of even. Maybe there's even some days that we kind of, maybe we, we paid off a few of those debts. We were really generous to the church and we were really sacrificial and we had a great prayer time. But this prayer teaches us every day that we live here on earth, we live as debtors to mercy. Just as you need to ask every day for your daily bread, so you and I need to ask every day that God would forgive us our debts. And notice, it's in the plural. Every single debt deserves to be met with God's righteous displeasure, but think about how many debts we owe to God and debts that we are powerless to pay. I introduced this morning the Dutch theologian Herman Vitzius. Listen to what he says about the plural debts. Had we contracted by one debt of this kind, would not the thought of it have been enough to fill our mind with indescribable horror? But we are chargeable with debts. Debts of every description, original, imputed, inherent, and actual debts of omission and commission, of ignorance, infirmity, and deliberate wickedness without limits and without number. Debts. Now at this point, some Christians may ask, well, why if I've already been redeemed, cleansed, justified, why do I have to keep coming back seemingly every day Asking for forgiveness. I remember my last church many years ago, a godly woman, and she really was, uh, and she was new to our church and she was very new to any reformed sort of worship. And she found it very strange that we had a weekly confession of sin. Maybe some of you have wondered the same thing. Really? And she was a, a lovely woman who loved the Lord, but for her it was a real downer. She said it just encouraged us to, to wallow in our sins. It was sort of like every week God just took us and said, bad dog, look what you've done. And we had to wallow around in our sins when didn't God want us to know that we were forgiven and free and be like David dancing with all of our might before the Lord? She wondered, isn't it a bit misplaced for justified sinners to return to their sins over and over? So why does Jesus teach us to pray, forgive us our debts? And not just once, but apparently to do it daily. Okay, Jesus, maybe I need to do that once, right? When I walk the aisle or I join the church, I became a Christian. Why do we do it all the time? Well, for starters, quite simply, because we sin all the time. We ask for forgiveness for our debts because we never stop accumulating debts. But more than that, we pray, forgive us our debts, because Jesus wants to remind us that we relate to God not just as a judge, but as a father. 
Now, you know this, but you, you and I forget it. This is such an important point and one that sincere Christians often miss. Even though we've been talking for all these weeks about coming to God as our Heavenly Father, yet I imagine that there are some of you here, you only know how to relate to God as a judge. Well, he is a judge. That's important. But if God is just a judge, then you're either innocent or guilty. You're justified or you're not justified. You don't think in terms of pleasing or displeasing. You think only in terms of a legal declaration, righteous or not righteous. Well, well, all of that is, is biblically necessarily true, and we must not forget that we relate to God in that forensic legal way. And yet that's not all. And in fact, that's not how Jesus instructs us to pray, first of all, to God as our judge, but to God as our Father. And if you only relate to God as a judge, your Christianity will be stilted, stale. Either you, you won't really relate to God with any warmth and intimacy, or you'll just go through life thinking, all I really need to do is get justification down. Okay, I did that, I said a prayer, I believed, I'm justified. Now everything else is I shouldn't look at my sin, I never displease God, it's just justification. But if we relate to God also as a father, then it means that we have not just a legal standing, but we have a living relationship. That's why Jesus says, address him, our father in heaven. A good father always loves his children. A good father, when his children sin intentionally or unintentionally, does not threaten to disown them, to, to never have anything to do with them. You cannot be a part of my family anymore. But isn't it true that you can please? You can displease a father? You say, really, does the Bible say it? Well, if we had time, I could show you more than a dozen places in the Bible where it talks about pleasing God. And you know the passages that talk about grieving the Holy Spirit, quenching the Holy Spirit. Y yes, it's true. You never, if you truly believe, are in danger of losing your justification. Yes and amen. But we relate to God as our Heavenly Father, as his children. And as his children, it is a dynamic relationship. And he is displeased when we hear his commands and disobey. And he is genuinely pleased even with our imperfect but sincere obedience. So you wouldn't go back to the judge and say, I know you let me free, but I think I made another mistake. But you would go to your father to say you're sorry. When my children do what they shouldn't or they fail to do what I asked of them on those very rare occasions. I don't want them fearing that they're going to be disowned, booted out of the family. I don't love them anymore. But neither do I want them to think that because they can always be assured of my love and always be confident of their place in the family that their disobedience is therefore not important, not a big deal. No, if they are good children... And if they know that I'm a good father, they will come to me. They'll acknowledge their sins. They'll be eager to say, I'm sorry, and I will be eager to forgive them. Do you understand this, Christian? You relate to God, not just as a judge, but as a father. 
One who is displeased when we disobey and one who with open arms like the prodigal is eager to forgive us and pleased with even our faulting steps of obedience. So as a Christian, I should not fear condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But I still should feel pricked in my conscience, not to despair, but to feel guilty for things that truly deserve punishment. I have disrupted in those moments the relationship I have with my heavenly father as his son. That's why I ask for forgiveness, not because I'm looking to be justified all over again, but because I have made a mess of the most important relationship in my life. The prayer, forgive us our debts, is the cry not of a frightened litigant, but of a loving child. Dad, I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? And of course, he's always eager to say, yes, you know that I will forgive you. There is a second half to this petition. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. So in this fifth petition, we are not only asking something of God, unique with all these petitions now, we are expecting something of ourselves. Forgiven People forgive. It's as simple as that. If you never forgive, you ought to wonder if you have truly experienced and really believed in forgiveness. Now at this point, it would be helpful to be more specific as to what we mean by forgiveness. It's one of those words, it's in songs, it's in readings, it's in sermons. We all hear the word, we know it's a good biblical word, but we may be confused. We may have sort of worldly kinds of definitions of forgiveness. What is it and what is it? Well, how would you define forgiveness just by looking at verse 12? Well, you would conclude forgiveness is something like canceling a debt. It's remitting a payment. That's the basic idea. When God forgives us, he says, I will not make you pay me what you owe me. When we forgive others, we say something similar. We say, I will not demand of you the moral payment that is rightfully mine. Now, the reason that we can do that is because of a profoundly theological reality that we understand that it is not our place to exact final judgment upon another person's sins. It's not our place. Why? Because every sin that has ever been committed is either been punished on the cross or will be punished in hell. So when you think about people in your life and you say, Pastor, you don't understand. I have, I have people have hurt me so deeply. Things I, I can't even talk about. They are so wrong. No doubt that's very true for many people in your life. And you have to remember that all of those sins, if they truly belong to Christ, have been paid for on the cross, and who are we to say that that was not enough? Or they will be paid for in eternity in hell. And because of that, we can forego the debts that are owed to us. That's the basic idea of forgiveness. Now, I need to add some clarification 
and explain then what forgiveness is not. Because that definition, it's very biblical, yet needs to be shaped out by some other biblical things. We need to put some guardrails. So let me give you two things forgiveness is not with that definition. Number one, forgiveness is not the absence of consequences. So if you're listening very carefully, you've noticed I said that we forego the moral debt that someone owes to us. That may not mean the removal of all earthly consequences. A dad may forgive his son for staying out late, truly, genuinely forgive him, but he may still be grounded for his disobedience. The son experiences discipline, just like Hebrews says, our heavenly father disciplines those he loves. There are consequences for violating parental authority. There are consequences for violating governmental authority. You may be personally forgiven for a wrongdoing, and yet you may face prison. Think about the thief on the cross. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. His sins had been forgiven. Did he get down from the cross? He was still being punished. And he had just admitted, we are rightly getting what we deserve. So even there, his forgiveness from God did not mean the elimination of all earthly consequences. The same thing can happen in the church. When there is no repentance, there are ecclesiastical consequences. Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, if a sinner goes on sinning without repentance, the church is obliged to act, to discipline the church must never be judgmental, but it is explicitly the church's duty to judge, 1 Corinthians 5.12. Now, this is very important because I, I have seen so many churches become very divided when there's, it often happens that someone in their midst com, commits some egregious sin, and immediately there's, there's these camps of, well, we should just forgive and forget, right? It's just... Welcome them back. Why should the, the authorities get involved? Maybe other people are thinking very hurt and pained and want to exact some sort of vengeance. Of course, both of those are wrong. What we see here from the Bible is it is never our place personally on some vendetta to seek vengeance, and yet there often will be earthly consequences. So to be truly forgiving people doesn't mean that when laws are broken, that we don't tell anyone, or that when vows are broken, that there are no consequences. So that's the first thing. Forgiveness is not the absence of consequences. Second, forgiveness is not the complete absence of any judgment. There is a right way and a wrong way to judge. We see this in Matthew 7. Do not judge, Jesus says. And many in our culture love that verse. Don't judge. But notice, then Jesus goes on to say, do not cast your pearls before swine. Well, how does that work unless you are making a spiritual evaluation, that person's a pig? Jesus is saying, don't have a pharisaical spirit of judgmentalism that always is critical, always assumes the worst about other people, that looks at their speck before your plank, that's what he's talking about. But that's not the same as making a wise evaluation, a spiritual analysis, a charitable judgment does not require us to be unthinking, unquestioning, undiscerning. Jesus says, be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. When Jesus tells us to forgive, he's not calling us to play with rattlesnakes and act like they're puppies. You, you, you can make 
a spiritual distinction. Forgiveness means that if the rattlesnake were to become a puppy, you wouldn't always remind him that he used to be a snake or something like that. It's a convoluted analogy. So that's what forgiveness is not. Let's, let's hunker down a little bit more on what forgiveness entails. Zacharias Ursinus, in his commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism, explains forgiveness very helpfully. He says forgiveness can take three different forms, and he says only one of them is always present. So one, the forgiveness of revenge. He says this pertains to all. We for, when we forgive, we will not seek revenge. So I hate to say it, but Inigo Montoya was probably not born again when he devoted his whole life to avenging his father's death. Second, Ursinus says, forgiveness can mean of punishment. This, he says, will not always be removed for God desires that his law be executed. And then the third category of judgment in reference to others. Quote, this should not always be remitted for God who prohibits falsehood would not have us to judge of knaves as honest men, but he designs that we should distinguish the good from the bad. In other words, forgiveness means we do not seek out revenge on our own terms. That's always true. It may sometimes be true that punishment is foregone, but not always. And we may not always be able to give the same judgment or evaluation. Sometimes people can really lose our trust. So forgiveness is not always the same as forgetting. Often when talking about forgiving those who sin against us, we immediately think about our own internal state. But the older, and I would say more biblical view of forgiveness, is that forgiveness is a relational transaction more than it is a therapeutic one. That is to say, forgiveness is an act of the will, whether or not it comes immediately or ever with a corresponding emotional feeling. Let me say that again because it's very important. Forgiveness is an act of the will. That is, it is a decision, a volitional movement, what you will and will not do. You will pray for them. You will not seek revenge against them. You will not gossip about them. Forgiveness is an act of the will, whether or not it comes immediately, or in some cases ever, with the corresponding emotional feeling. Here's what the Puritan Thomas Watson says. Forgiveness means, quote, we strive against all thoughts of revenge when we will not do our enemies mischief, but wish them well, grieve at their calamities, pray for them, seek reconciliation with them, and show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them. Many Christians, influenced by well-meaning but some misguided notions of counseling, and sometimes pop psychology, have a therapeutic understanding of forgiveness. I'm not saying that all therapy is bad, but here's what I mean by a therapeutic understanding of forgiveness. They think of forgiveness as a unilateral, internal effort to get my emotions under control. Now, as helpful as that may be at times, that is not where the Bible starts with its understanding of forgiveness. There's a book, if I was thinking ahead, it would have got it on our book table, but makes this point forcefully. The book is called Unpacking Forgiveness. It's 10 or so years old, came out by a pastor, Chris Bronze. 
Several years ago, I interviewed Chris on my blog, and I asked him about what do you mean by this therapeutic notion of forgiveness? Here's what he said. I'll just read a few paragraphs. I think it's worth repeating. Therapeutic forgiveness insists that forgiveness is at its core a feeling. Our culture has picked up on this in a big way. When most people say that they forgive, they mean it is a private matter in which he or she is not going to feel bitter. Borrowing a line from Boston's Don't Look Back album, I argue that forgiveness is more than a feeling. Biblical forgiveness is something that happens between two parties. When God forgives us, our relationship with him is restored. That is why Calvin said that the whole of the gospel is contained under the headings of repentance and forgiveness of sins. Once people make forgiveness therapeutic, you have all sorts of non-biblical things happening. For instance, some people say it is legitimate to forgive God. This is a heretical idea because God has never done anything which requires forgiveness. But therapeutic forgiveness needs to forgive God so that bitterness is no longer felt. Therapeutic forgiveness also diminishes the necessity of two parties working out their differences. If forgiveness is simply how I feel, there's no need to worry about the relationship. The tragedy of therapeutic forgiveness is that in making individual feelings the center of everything, I think it ultimately leads to bitterness and the wrong feelings. So listen very carefully so you don't misunderstand. Overcoming anger and resentment is important. Forgiveness, however, is something more than that, something different, something involving two parties instead of one. Forgiveness is what we grant people when they repent. Now, you you might think of it as we always have an attitude of willing forgiveness, an, an attitude that is offering forgiveness, but strictly speaking, the Bible, it's a transaction of those who come and repent, then receive forgiveness, While we should always have this attitude that's ready to forgive, always put forward a sincere offer of forgiveness, the fullest expression of biblical forgiveness happens when one side repents and the other side then removes the moral debt that is owed them. I have released you from that which I could have held over your head. I think of the scene in Braveheart that the TV version of Braveheart, where William Wallace kneels before his father-in-law after his daughter was killed. William Wallace, in secret, marries the love of his life. And because the English are trying to get after William Wallace, they go after his wife and they kill her. And so, in a way, it was his fault that she died. So, in this moving scene at the funeral... Mel Gibson, William Wallace, goes and kneels before his grieving father-in-law, and the father struggles for a moment. You can tell fighting what he should do, and then he puts his hand on the head of William Wallace, choking back tears, indicating he will forgive him, though his daughter died in a way because of William Wallace. He is with that gesture of a hand on the head saying, I do not hold this against you. That's forgiveness. You are no longer in my debt. You do not owe me anything. I will not hold this over your head. You do not have to work something off for me to accept you. You will be my son. What you should give me to make up for my loss, I will no longer 
require of you. That's what that hand means. Now, I go through this definition of forgiveness carefully so we can feel the proper weight of this fifth petition. Because the Bible is clear here and then in many other parts in the New Testament that the unforgiving person is an unforgiven person. And so I want that to land on you, but I want to make sure you don't misunderstand it and think, well, I still feel very hurt from what my parents did to me or what a spouse did to me, and I still struggle with some feelings of anger and resentment. Those may endure for the rest of your life. You can still have an attitude of forgiveness, and if they repent, you can give freely the fullest expression of biblical repentance. Our forgiving heart does not merit God's forgiveness, but a forgiving heart is a condition for God's forgiveness. It doesn't matter what experience you think you had or what prayer you prayed. If you do not forgive, you have to wonder if you are forgiven. And look at the connection here in verse 12. This is really amazing, almost scandalous. Because Jesus would have us ask God, in a manner of speaking, to follow our example. You ever seen that? Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. That's a bold prayer to say, God, would you treat me as I'm treating other people? Hmm, that's a bit convicting. Do you feel confident asking God to treat you in the same way that you are treating other people. We should not understand the connection in verse 12 in some legalistic formula. God, I scratch their back, so you scratch mine. It's not a statement of manipulation. It's a statement of recognition. Only the one who forgives can expect to be forgiven. This is Jesus' point. With the measure you use, so will be measured to you. If that's the way you want to treat people, if that's the way you want to relate to others, hypercritical, counting every wrong, never releasing any debts. If that's the way you want to relate to people, God says, okay, I can do that to you. Only the one who forgives can expect to be forgiven or to state the same thing in the other direction. The one who knows that his sins have been forgiven by God will in turn be eager to forgive those who sin against him. Just as we read from Matthew 18, God has forgiven us $10 million dollars And we can't release somebody from the 50 bucks they owe us. Forgiveness is one of the most overlooked aspects of Christian discipleship. Think of what Jesus says earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 5, if someone legitimately has something against you, it doesn't mean if anybody has something against you or you could just, Jesus could never worship because someone was always mad at him. You could go look at your you know, your Twitter mentions or your, your Facebook and somebody's always mad at you somewhere if you're a public person. That's not what he means. He means if someone legitimately has something against you, leave your worship, leave your gift at the altar, go take care of that relationship. In other words, even prayer should be interrupted for forgiveness. Think about all the places in the New Testament that stress the importance of this forgiveness. Matthew 7, 2, in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. Matthew 18, 32, then the master called the unmerciful servant, you wicked servant, I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to, shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant? 
Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. I don't think it's an overstatement to say there is nothing as important in your life as asking God to forgive your debts. And there may be nothing as hard as God asking you to forgive your debtors. So let me finish with two questions. First, are you keeping from God things that you ought to place at his feet? Perhaps your relationship with God is not what it ought to be. Perhaps it's ruptured because you have not come to confess your sins. Those debts, though we may even be justified, those debts yet are like barnacles on the hull of a ship. Or if you think of that famous scene from Chronicles of Narnia, they're like Eustace's dragon scales that need to be scraped off of us. When is the last time you said with all your heart, I'm sorry to someone else? And it starts before God. If you are not going before God often, daily to say, I'm sorry, then either you're already dead and you're in heaven and you're a little sleepy, but no, that's not yet, or you're not being honest with yourself. Have you refused to bring before God? Are there things that you have kept hidden that you don't believe that he would really release you from those debts? Do you think that he does not know? Are you avoiding an honest admission of what you really are doing or have become? Nothing can be kept hidden from his sight. Don't you want to know the joy of a clean conscience, a restored relationship with your father? Sometimes Calvinists think that to be a really good Calvinist, I should probably feel pretty miserable and guilty all the time. That is not true. We have much that renders us guilty, but we're meant to come before God and say, I'm sorry, here are my debts, and God says, I love you, I forgive you, and you feel the freedom of a clean conscience, not a low-level sense of constant guilt and remorse and shame. So don't think that this question here is just to prick your conscience. It is, but it's also to give you the freedom that God means for you to enjoy. And here's the final question. Are you demanding of others what God has not demanded of you? Here again is Vitzius. When God forgives... He frees the sinner from everlasting punishment and blesses him with his favor, which is the fountain of life and all happiness. But when we forgive, we merely cease to indulge toward the offender our feeble and perhaps impotent wrath and bestow upon him our best wishes. God's forgiveness is so much grander than ours. And yet are some of us demanding of others a price that God himself has not even required of us? Do not ask your neighbor, your spouse, your parent, your friend to pick up the tip when someone else has already paid for the whole meal. 
So let me ask the question in one other way. What would it look like if this week God treated you and your sins in the same way you treat those who sin against you? Would you say, praise the Lord, I am in for a good week. Yes, God, could you treat me like that? I'm not so sure for a lot of us. No doubt, some people have hurt you very deeply. We all have been sinned against and some are of the garden variety and some are very, very egregious. So heinous that you may not have even spoken them to anyone, barely even to yourself. It's true. We can be sinned against. People owe us. Notice God does, he never says here, it's no big deal what happened to you. Forgiveness is not saying, you know what? Sin doesn't matter. That's not what it means when God forgives you. If sin didn't matter, then Jesus wouldn't have to go to the cross. Forgiveness is not a magic wand that says, eh, I don't care about sin. That's not what God is saying when he forgives us. That's not what you're saying when you forgive other people. Yes, it was a sin against you. It hurt, still does perhaps. You're not saying it's no big deal. You're saying God is bigger. The cross is bigger. Hell is bigger. So when we struggle to forgive, and all of us will at times, the struggle is because we are focusing on what they owe or what we feel when Jesus would have us focus on what we have already been forgiven, what God has already done to us. You're not going to get there by staring at the sin, staring at your feelings. You only have this forgiveness, this attitude of forgiveness by looking up and understanding all that God has released you from. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give grace. We give thanks for your grace, for the grace of forgiveness. If you should count iniquities, oh, Lord, who could stand? But you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus. What a friend for sinners. What a lover of our souls. We pray for his grace and that we may in turn give it to others. In his name we pray, amen.